This morning we're going to talk about how truth never stands alone, that it always comes with witnesses. At least theoretically, that's the way our court system should work, because we have the credibility of cases built on the consistency of its witnesses. In other words, the more people you have telling the same story, the more believable that story will be. Truth is rarely validated on a single person's opinion. Truth always comes with a multitude of witnesses. I think it's especially true when we start talking about the truth of God. Because in our world today, there are a lot of opinions about the truth of God. But it's actually one of the things that makes Christianity very unique. And that is the multitude of witnesses. In fact, if you think about it, that's what the Bible is. It's a book of witnesses. It was written over a 2,000-year period of time by 40 different authors on three different continents, and yet they all tell the very same story. It's a story of God's love and redemption of a sinful and broken world. It's what we call the gospel. That's the story of the Bible. That's why the best way to understand the Bible is to read the Bible. Let Scripture interpret Scripture. But we have to admit that this is somewhat of a challenge in our world today because of the wealth of resources that are available to us. Why read the Bible when we can listen to a podcast or watch a video or read a commentary, which is basically someone else's opinion about what the Bible has to say? And before we know it, we start depending on these resources and we form our convictions on the opinions of other people instead of what we know and believe to be true. Our life becomes guided by cultural beliefs rather than biblical truth. It may surprise you that this was not a problem that's unique to us. It was actually a problem all throughout the Scripture including what we'll see in our passage this morning. And so we will be reminded this morning that if we want to go to, if we want to understand God's truth, then we need to look at God's word. It's a reminder to them, it's a reminder to us. So before we do that, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, as we open up your word, we want to be reminded that this is your truth. These are words spoken by you for our good and for the praise and glory of your name. And so as we come to your word, we want to have humble and teachable hearts. We want to have discerning ears. We want to have a willing mind who's willing to, to listen and hear things that might redirect how we live. The choices that we make, we want to give you complete authority in and through our life. So, Father, that's our prayer as we open your word this morning. And we ask this in your name. Amen. So, if you would turn to Acts chapter 17, uh, verse 1, and we will uh, begin where we left off last, Acts chapter 17, verse 1. Luke, in writing the book of Acts, is recording this history, and he says that now when they, this group of four, Luke and uh, Paul and Silas and Timothy traveled through Am 
Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. I just want to pause there and remind you that as we work our way through uh, Paul's second missionary journey as recorded in the book of Acts, which is what we're looking at here, we're doing so in order to set a context of his letters that he will write to the Thessalonians. So what we're reading here specifically in our passage this morning is really important because it sets the context for those letters that we will soon look at together. As you can see on this map, Thessalonica was a port city. Is there a map? Oh, sure enough, there's a map. It is strategically placed for commerce. It allowed ships to come in in a very protected area. It's a capital city in one of the four Roman provinces of Macedonia. Last week we talked about Philippi and how it was kind of a, a, a military capital. Well, Thessalonica is like a, commer, a capital for commerce. And because of that, there was a lot of trade in the city. And because there was a lot of trade in the city, there was a lot of diversity in the city. Unlike what we saw in Philippi, there was actually a synagogue in Thessalonica, and as we will see, a very healthy population of the Jewish people in Thessalonica. Now look at verse 2. And according to Paul's custom, he went to them, and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and giving evidence that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, and saying, this Jesus whom I am proclaiming to you is the Christ. Some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas along with a great multitude of the God-fearing Greeks and a number of leading women. As we get started here, I want you to notice the progression that we see in Paul's teaching. It says that he begins with reasoning with them from the Scripture. The root word in reasoning is where we get our English word, dialogue. So what this is telling us is that Paul is just having a conversation as they are looking at Scripture together. He's saying, let's just start with what we know to be true. And so they open up the Old Testament Scripture and begin to look at the passages together. And I want you to notice how Paul leads them to a specific topic. He says, let's talk about the Christ. What do we know about the promised Messiah? This is important because in that one story of the Bible, that gospel story, the Christ is the central character of the story. So it makes sense that this would be a, a topic of conversation that you would want to have in this context. The term Christ is actually describing a role. It means the anointed one. It's where we get our word Messiah. All of the Old Testament Scripture points to the promise of this Messiah. Because the Messiah is God's solution for a broken and sinful world. That's what the story of the Bible is all about. But at the time of Paul's teaching, there were some traditional beliefs that had been circulated under the teaching of the rabbis. They were the, the teachers of that day. They believed that if Israel was walking with the Lord, which would describe their strict obedience to the law, if the Israelites were walking with the Lord, then the Messiah would come 
as a conquering king. This king would rule over Israel and as a result give Israel dominion in the world. According to their view, God's solution to the world's problem was to give Israel a place of dominance in a world in which they were currently being dominated. They lived under Roman rule. But Paul is entering into the synagogue and he's saying, let's talk about the Christ and let's look at it together to see what the Bible has to say. What does the Old Testament tell us about the promised Messiah? He wants them to see that when the, when the Bible, when the Old Testament talks about the Messiah, it actually describes him as a suffering Messiah. He will be a king, but only after he suffers, dies, and then rises again. All of the Old Testament speaks to these truths. Probably the easiest place for you to see that is in Isaiah 53. So if you would, keep your finger here in Acts, and let's go to Isaiah 53. This is a very important part of the Scripture because this is one of those witnesses that speaks of the coming Messiah, the the Christ, the central character of that gospel story of salvation. Here we see the prophet Isaiah, one of the witnesses, describing the suffering of the coming Messiah. Look at verse 3 of Isaiah chapter 53. Describing this Messiah, he describes him in this way. He was despised and forsaken of man. A man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, like one from whom men hide their face. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our sins. The punishment that we deserved fell on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us have have turned our own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him, the Christ the promised Messiah. Now I want you to keep in mind that in this conversation, Paul has said nothing about Jesus at this point in time. He just wants to talk about Scripture and to see what Scripture has to say about the coming Messiah. Clearly, he says in the Scripture that the the Messiah will suffer, that he'll be pierced, that he'll be punished for sins which he himself did not commit. Maybe at this point, he looks at another prophet. You don't have to turn there. I'll have it up on the board. It's Zechariah. You can write it down. Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10. Listen to what Zechariah says, another witness, if you will, in the Bible, speaking of the promised Messiah. He says in Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10, And I will pour out my spirit on the house of David, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the spirit of grace and of supplication, so that they will look on me whom they have pierced. And they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son. And they will weep bitterly for him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. Now the key to understanding what's happening in this passage is to be clear about who's speaking. 
If you go back to chapter 12, verse 1, it says, thus declares the Lord. This is God speaking in Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10. And so if you connect that with what's happening in Isaiah 53, we learn that the suffering Messiah is God incarnate. He says, they will look upon me, thus says the Lord, God, they will look upon me whom they have pierced. Now go back to Isaiah 53, look at verse 8 with me. Isaiah 53, verse 8, by oppression and judgment, he, this promised Messiah, was taken away. And as for his generation who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due. Here we see that the Messiah will suffer being pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our sins. The punishment that we deserve fell on him. But it goes on here and says, that he dies, that he's cut off from the land of the living. He would be placed in a tomb, a tomb by, among the wicked for the purpose of the wealthy. But look again, look at verse 10. Let me read verse 9. His grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he with a rich man in his death, because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his vote. Mouth. Now verse 10, but the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself a guilt offering, he will see his offspring. He, this promised Messiah, will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. So here we see that the one who was punished, the one who suffered, then died, would then be alive again. Otherwise, how else would he See his offspring. Tells us that his days of this promised Messiah, this, the days would be prolonged. And those who belong to him will prosper under his care. Those things are only true if this one who has died is now alive. Maybe Paul reminds them of a passage from another witness. You don't need to look at this one, but you can write it down. Psalm 16, verse 10. Psalm 16.10, David, one of the other witnesses in the Bible, was writing, and he says, For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, to the grave. And he goes on and says, Neither will you allow the Holy One, the promised Messiah, the Christ, to undergo decay. He will not undergo decay because he will not remain in the grave. He will rise again. Now, likely this discussion would have challenged some of those traditional beliefs about this promised Messiah. But Paul is letting Scripture speak for itself. He's asking them, what does it say? Maybe that's all they talked about the first day. Maybe that's all they talked about so that they could consider the truth of what Scripture has to say about the Christ. But then... At some point, Paul ties what Scripture has to say with Jesus of Nazareth. He used it to explain, as we see in our passage, how Jesus is the Christ, the promised Messiah. Paul was likely a witness to when he was pierced for our transgression, when Jesus was crucified on a cross. 
He was likely a witness to the fact that Jesus was placed in a tomb. I bet Paul knew the rich man whose tomb Jesus was laid in. And yet the body of Jesus did not experience decay, just like one of the witnesses said it wouldn't. Because after three days, he rose from the grave. He appeared to his disciples. He spoke of his promised return. And I bet it's at this point when Paul gives his eyewitness account of when he himself saw the risen Christ on the road to Damascus. Paul wants them to see how Jesus fulfilled all that Scripture foretold. And and notice there in verse 4, it says of our passage, let's go back to that, Acts chapter 17, verse 4, it says, and some of the Jews were persuaded. But by contrast, a lot of others, a lot of non-Jews believed. I think that's because some of the, most of the Jews couldn't see past their traditional cultural beliefs to acknowledge the truth of a suffering Messiah. The non-Jews didn't have that barrier, and for them it was really straightforward. I read what the Scripture says, I hear what Jesus did, it makes sense that He fulfilled what the Scripture has to say. Now look at verse 5 of our passage. But the Jews, becoming jealous and taking along some wicked men from the market, formed a mob and set the city in an uproar. Now I want to pause there because we just need to ask as we look at this passage, why were they so jealous? I mean, it's not like they're just simply uninterested. They're actually completely offended by what Paul has to say. It's so much so that their offense has turned into violence. They've organized a mob to start a riot in the city so that the, the message can stop. All because people were believing in the message that Paul was proclaiming. Why does this make them so jealous? I think this is the reason why. If people believe Paul, then that means that the Jewish tradition doesn't line up with biblical truth. And in that culture, it's unacceptable. The reason for their jealousy is the result of their pride. Their whole identity was built around being right. Look again at verse 5. But the Jews, becoming jealous and taking along some of the wicked men from the marketplace, formed a mob and set the city in an uproar. And coming upon the house of Jason, they were seeking to bring them, Paul and Silas, out to the people. And when they did not find them, they began dragging Jason and some brethren before the city authorities, shouting, these men have upset the world and have come here also. And Jason has welcomed them, and they all act contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And they stirred up the crowd and the city authorities who heard these things, and when they had received a pledge from Jason and the others, they released them. Apparently, they knew Paul and Silas were staying in the home of Jason. And when they couldn't find the guests of that home, they just arrested the hosts of that home. And they took them to the city officials. Notice their exaggerated claims in verse 6. Talking about Paul and Silas, they said they've thrown, these two men have thrown the whole world upside down. Think about that. Two men 
are being held responsible for all the problems in the world. But if they were listening to Paul and Silas, they would realize that they're not causing problems. They're trying to offer a solution. Paul and Silas would agree, this world is a mess. But it's not because of Paul and Silas. It's because of sin. And Jesus is the answer. He is the solution to the problem of sin in the world. But the jealousy of these men prevented them from seeing the truth. In fact, they suggest that the message of Jesus is an offense to Caesar. And here's the hypocrisy. They hate Caesar. They hate him. They don't want to live under his authority. They want to be in authority. Remember, the Jews were expecting their Messiah to be a king. That's what they wanted. They just couldn't accept the rule of Jesus because that rule was established by way of the cross. And for Jesus to be the Messiah would require them to admit that they are sinners. They were offended by the truth that suggested that they were wrong. Pride was the source of their jealous anger. It was an obstacle to their belief. And I believe that that obstacle is the primary barrier that even exists in our world today. Pride is the primary barrier to belief in Jesus Christ even in our world today. Because you will not trust Jesus as a Messiah if you do not believe that you are a sinner in need of a Savior, which reeks of pride. Same barrier, same issue. Look at verse 10. And the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went to the synagogue of the Jews. Now these were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica, and they received the word with great eagerness, examining the Scriptures daily to see whether the things were so. Many of them, many of them, therefore, believed. Those in Thessalonica were offended by the truth. Those in Berea believed in the reliability of the truth. And that doesn't mean that they believed everything they heard. It says that the Bereans were students of God's Word. They took everything they heard and then compared it with what God said. They examined the Scriptures daily to see if what Paul was teaching was actually true. The truth of Paul was being validated by the truth of God in his Word. Now, I don't expect Paul's methods changed at all in Berea compared to what he did in Thessalonica. I think he probably said, hey, let's have a conversation about what the Bible has to say. Let's look at the Old Testament and let's talk about the Christ. What do we know about him? And because the Bereans were students of God's word, they were eager. And I'm sure they had a response, something similar to, please do. We love being in God's word. Let's do that together. So they did. I bet Paul went to the exact same places. I bet he went to Isaiah. I bet he talked about Zechariah. I bet he looked at the Psalms, all the witnesses of the Scripture that spoke of the promised Messiah. I'm sure they discussed the reality of the suffering Messiah. But the Bereans, unlike those in Thessalonica, the Bereans were willing to put aside some of the traditional teaching to understand biblical truth. 
Because when Paul told them about Jesus, they are the ones who made the connection. They knew what the scripture said because they had spent time in the word and they worked through everything Paul said to see if it lined up. And then Paul told them about Jesus. And they made the connection and said, he's the one. And many of the Jews believed because Jesus fulfilled what the Bible says is true. There's only one story in the Bible. And when you read that story, you find that Jesus is, in fact, the main character in that story. He is the Christ, the promised Messiah. And as a result, many of them believed. Look at how it continues in verse 13. But when the Jews of Thessalonica found out that the word of God had been proclaimed by Paul in Berea also, they came there likewise, agitating, stirring up the crowd just like they did in Thessalonica. And they immediately, and then immediately the brethren sent Paul out to go as far as the sea, and Silas and Timothy remained there. Now those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and receiving a command from Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. Now, before we finish, I want you to not overlook the hostility of the Thessalonian Jews. Okay, they had, it was 100 plus miles from Thessalonica to Berea. Okay, it wasn't an easy journey. But they were so determined to stop Paul's message, they made that trip just to stir up another riot to stop the message from being preached. Now, that's important. Because when Paul writes his letters to the Thessalonians, he's going to talk about their perseverance of the faith. He's going to talk about their persecution and the trials that they are enduring. Based on what we see happening here, we can understand why, right? If they had that hostility towards Paul and Silas, you know they were going to have that same kind of opposition to the Christian church in Thessalonica. That's the context in which those letters would have been written. Here again, in Berea, they stir up another crowd. I want you to look back at verse 5 and notice what they did. It says that they found troublemakers in the marketplace. Again, we're seeing the hypocrisy of these Jewish people in Thessalonica. See, these are sinners. These people, these troublemakers in the marketplace... Sinners that the Jews would normally condemn and reject unless, unless it benefits their cause. And then they no longer have a concern. No wonder they were unwilling to accept the truth of Paul's message because their lives were never guided by the truth to begin with. You see, when it's all said and done, Paul is not on a mission to convince anybody to believe him. He's a messenger. He's a witness. He's inviting people to trust God, to see what his word says and to put faith and trust in that, not in him. Which is why it's important for you and I to do the very same thing. We get together here every Sunday and we go through this exercise of of looking at God's word together. And I hope, like the Bereans, when you come, that you're eager to learn. And that's a good thing. But we're not here just to grow in our understanding. We're here to deepen our faith. 
And so as we do that, I think it's important for us to at least finish up this morning considering what it means to to grow in our faith by learning to trust in God's Word. I believe the most important place to start, and this will be no surprise to you because I say it all the time, the most important attribute of spending time in the Word is a teachable heart. It has to begin with a humble and teachable heart. Pride, as we see with the unbelieving Jews, is a barrier to our belief. It is an obstacle to our faith. And what's true for them is equally true for us. We have to be careful not to let our convictions be based on cultural beliefs. Like the Bereans, we need to be a student of God's Word. And being a student of God's Word begins with having a teachable heart. I love the way that Paul describes what it means. It gives, at least gives me a picture when I read this passage of what it looks like to enter into God's Word. So if you want to look that with me, turn to 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. Very familiar passage. I want you to read this with me as Paul writes to Timothy and explains to him in verse 16. He says, all Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be adequate and equipped for every good work. That tells me when I go to God's word, I I should expect one, if not all, of four things to happen, okay? The first is I should expect God's word to reveal his truth. That's the teaching part. I can't know truth apart from God's Word. That's where it is. And so I should go into God's Word expecting it to reveal truth, to teach. But I should also expect that God's Word is going to expose my wrong thinking. That's reproof. Reproof is exposing wrong thinking, errors in thinking, mistakes in thinking. But then you have the next part. It should adjust me towards right thinking. That's the correction. So the reproof is showing what's wrong. The correction is showing what's right. In order to then strengthen my faith and equip me to serve. That's the training and the good works. And when I look at that passage, I think that's what it looks like. That should be my heart and my attitude as I open God's word. But what about when we listen to God's Word? What about when we're being taught? I think this is where we need to have the quality of discerning ears. We need to listen cautiously to what we hear, including, don't miss this, including what I say on Sunday morning. Even though I can assure you I prepare diligently every week with a desire to speak accurately the truth of God's word, I make mistakes. I can remember, you'll appreciate this, Miss Courtney, when Dick Courtney was alive, he came up to me after one of my early sermons when I first came into the teaching pastor role, so kind, so encouraging. He said, hey, I really appreciated your sermon this morning. He says, I I learned something new. He says, "I I didn't know that that David was from the tribe of Benjamin. And then we went on and had a conversation, and I got to thinking later, wait a second, David's from the tribe? That doesn't sound right. And I looked at my notes, and I thought, sure enough, that's what I said, but wait a second, that's not true. He's not from the tribe of Benjamin. He's from the tribe of Judah. 
And you know what? He knew that all along. (laughs) But listen to me, that was his gracious way to come to me so that I could reconsider what I said because he knew that I wanted to say what was right. But I make mistakes. And it's not the only mistake I'll ever make. So listen cautiously with discerning ears to everything you hear being taught. Because more important than my unintended mistakes is the intentional deceit that exists in our world today. And it is all around you. In fact, if you'll look at 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 3. So if you'll go to the next chapter of that 2 Timothy passage, chapter 4, verse 3. Paul tells Timothy, there will be a time, a time will come, when they will not, they being the people, will not endure sound doctrine. But wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires. And will turn away from their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths and traditions and to cultural beliefs. But you be sober in all things. Endure hardship. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. Paul is saying that there will be a time that will come. And please hear me this morning. I want to tell you on the authority of Scripture, the time has come. It is now We must have discerning ears or you will be deceived. So filter everything you hear through the truth of God's word, which means you have to read God's word. Have a teachable heart. Have discerning ears, but have a willing mind. Don't be lazy and only consume what I call pre-digested truth. The image that I have in my mind are those nature shows where the mama bird goes out and feeds and then comes out and the baby birds open their mouth and she regurgitates everything into their mouth. Okay? That's pre-digested truth. Now, you'll never forget that. See, that's stuck with you forever. Right? We talked about this with our ministry leaders in the fall. We said, look, here's the deal. We have a tremendous resource made available to everyone in our church called Right Now Media. Okay? It's like Uh, Netflix for Bible studies, and it's awesome. And there's some great teaching in there. But please, do not use it and let it become a crutch so that all you do is hear what others have to say without ever opening God's Word yourself. You need to open God's Word every time you hear someone teach to make sure, like the Bereans, it lines up with what God says. See, here's the reality. We have... Tremendous teachers all throughout this church, inside and outside. Kimberly Kennedy teaches BFF. She is a tremendous teacher. You guys just did the IF gathering with the women's ministry. Jenny Allen, fantastic. I know a lot of you listen to podcasts from teachers like Matt Chandler and Tim Keller. Man, I admire those guys. They're so blessed and talented in their teaching. But no teacher, no matter how good they are, speaks with absolute truth. You will only find that within the realm of Scripture. In the end, it really doesn't matter if you believe me or Kimberly or Matt Chandler or Tim Keller or any of the teachers in our world today. If we're doing our job, we're only witnesses to the truth. More important than believing us is trusting God, is believing Him. 
And when you trust God, you will align your life with what his word has to say. So as Brian comes forward with his team and we close this morning, let me make an offer to you. Some of you may hear that and say, gosh, I just, I struggle with knowing how to read God's word, with how to really find it to be meaningful in my life. If that's you, that's okay. I'm going to invite you. If you have a desire to learn more about how to just to be in God's word, I want to spend some time with you. And if we have enough people, we'll just all meet together for lunch and do it together. Because here's the thing. You don't need a seminary education, okay? All you need to do is be able to observe. It is amazing how much you will gain from Scripture as it applies to your life by just looking at what it says and considering how does that impact my life, just by observation alone. We did this with some of the men in our elders meetings this last year when we invited you to come We've done it in our regeneration ministry. And listen, if that would be of interest to you, tell me. Let's just, let's reason together. Let's have a conversation about how we learn from observing what the Scripture has to say. Because here's the thing. I thought about this in the context of marriage, and I'm going to ruin something I was planning on writing later. But anyway, I thought about marriage like this. Marriage is like a treasure in a cave that has no end. And on one hand, you look at it, and Keegan made the comment this weekend. He says, you know, marriage is something that you're going to work on for the rest of your life. But some of us heard that and go, dang, I thought there was going to be a point where I just coast, right? I get everything figured out, and then we just kind of coast. He's saying, no, we're going to work to the finish line. Well, here's the deal. This is why this is good news. Think about it as a treasure, an endless treasure, so that every day you go in to mine more treasure, and you go back the next day, and there's still more to be found. Is that a problem? Are you upset about that? It's a good thing, right? Keep finding the treasure, and the same is true of God's Word. If you'll just keep digging, you're going to keep finding more and more treasure, and you can dig for the rest of your life, and you'll never get to the end of it. So if that's important to you and you want to grow in that, you can email me, you can text me, you can send something in, uh, uh, call us on Monday morning, and, and let's just spend some time together about what that might look like to uh, draw the treasure out of God's word. Amen? Let's stand together and sing. So the Lord does speak, and he speaks through his word. It is a treasure that you can mine for the rest of your life and never get to the end of it. So let's be like the Bereans. Let's be eager to learn and to grow, to deepen our faith for the purpose of serving and loving the world around us. We have that answer to the sin and brokenness that exists in our world today. And so let's grow in that knowledge together. Let's be students of God's word. Let's be humble and teachable as we listen to him. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for our time together this morning. Thank you for this church family, that it is a safe place, that nobody here has it figured out. We're all learning and growing together, and every person has something unique to offer. Help us value that. Help us to appreciate one another for the things that we bring that help us each understand and know you better. So, Father, thank you for your time and your word. Thank you for your word that you have spoken to us, that you are speaking to us. And these words last for eternity. We live in these truths. We live because of these truths. And so may we enjoy them daily. We pray this in your name. Amen.